Welcome to Hollywood 2.0 of the Speed of Cats. Today's guest is Nico Mealy. He's a faculty member at the Harvard Kennedy School, leading expert in the integration of social media and Web 2.0, and author of The End of Big, How the Internet Makes David the New Goliath. My book, The End of Big, is about the way, uh, on the one hand, our institutions have failed us, and at the same time, how we're using technology to create alternative approaches to the same problems. And so every chapter of the book covers a different institution, big news, big government, big armies, big universities. And I also have a chapter on big fun, the entertainment industry. And there's this curious thing going on where, on the one hand, the entertainment industry in many ways, has not done a great job. If you look at, for example, in 1981, the top 10 highest grossing films were almost all original scripts. But today, uh, the top 10 highest grossing films of 2012 were almost all sequels or remakes, not a single original script in the mix. And people generally frustrated by the kind of lack of creativity and choice in mainstream entertainment are turning to the web and to the alternatives offered by the internet. And that takes a variety of forms. That's everything from uh, Netflix to YouTube and everything in between. And when we talk about um, different options f for uh, consumers, are, are you suggesting that, that the audience doesn't want so much um, content that's based on like IP, they want more original voices? Is there saying that that's kind of the competitive advantage of the web? Or is this the film industry is just their business model is broken? So no matter what they do, it's just so big that they're not going to be making money for the types of, uh, you know, price tags of films. Well, I think that the, it's hard to say exactly what it is people want, except to say they're not getting it. They're looking for more variety, but they're also looking for quality. They want they want good stories, well-told stories, and they want a broader range of material. The um, you know one of the things that I think is most troubling, or I don't know if it's most troubling, but one of the most interesting things about what's happening in the entertainment industry is it seems like there is a um, it seems like there is a, a real challenge to the organizational layer to what's required to create uh, to create media you know it's it's publishing houses and record companies and increasingly tv production houses and movie studios that are facing the crunch it's most acute with record companies and with publishing companies but across the board it's that organizational layer the talent is always going to be in demand and the um you know, the, 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 the vehicle of distribution is always going to be in demand, but it's that middle layer that's getting crunched here. And the, the question is, what value does that middle layer provide? And are, are we going to lose anything if we lose that middle layer? Maybe we're not going to lose anything, but it's worth asking the question. In the case of news, a different kind of media, we're losing something significant when we lose that middle layer of newspapers. We're losing a real... Uh, we're, we're losing a significant vehicle for investigative journalism and holding power accountable. 
And so one of the things I wanted to explore was, there, could I find someone who wanted, was concerned about the future of the blockbuster, an argument for the big, an argument for the big in media? And the truth was, I had a lot of trouble finding it. And you, um, you just said uh, about about news uh, that that editorial layer is is it could be um, a service to the readership because they protect them from misinformation. And I noticed that in the situation of the Boston uh, bomber suspects, when one was on the run, I was looking at Twitter and there was really legitimate stories and there was, you know, serious journalists that were also reporting, but there was also a tremendous amount of misinformation that you could just jump down a rabbit hole and sooner or later you have completely don't know what you're talking about. And now the danger is you retweet that and then your friends and family are now consuming this and now you've vetted it. So I think there's a real danger if you make it too uh, bare bones of an infrastructure. Well, there's no doubt that the both the way we create and consume news is changing dramatically. And that has significant implications for business models. One of my questions is what is that what does that look like in the entertainment industry? What are the future business models for a movie studio or a, um, you know, or, or a publishing house or a, or a music or a record label? The, you know, a lot of artists in, 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 the, in the new world order, a lot of artists have to do everything themselves. You know, they have to be good marketers and good business people and good artists. And part of the purpose of that organizational layer has been to let creative people be more creative. And so one of the things I, I wonder about is ways we can build better organizational infrastructure to help artists create the best work there is and what that could look like. And also what role some of the even bigger, some of the big platforms like YouTube or Facebook or Amazon might have in creating systems that, that are better for creative people, for artists. Now, is there a way that you can imagine that, you know, this, you know, future version of this entrepreneur slash artist works also in tandem with the big Hollywood? Because it's almost like the YouTube is this incubator and they could get you so far, but then on the next level, if somebody wants to, uh, let's say, for instance, work, be part of like a major TV show, because there's there's still value, there's still TV shows that have huge viewerships, and they have a certain level where they can work with brands like that will, for when they spend more money on the traditional entertainment industry, then they might spend online. So is there a way that there could be a more of a collaboration versus them, you know, kind of battling for uh, people's time? Well, I mean, I'm actually unconvinced that Fusion will work well. Part of the reason why those online shows work well is that they're outside the existing ecosystem of entertainment. And I, I, I also wonder, you know, you said there are still some shows with big followings, but are there really? You know, compared to a decade ago, there's there's very hard to get any kind of reach on traditional TV unless it's the Super Bowl. Increasingly, media habits have just fractured pretty dramatically. And so um, and, and th- th- that's what creates a bunch of challenge. In the meantime, at the same time, you look at what's happening with, you know, uh, weeknights during primetime 
almost a third of internet traffic is uh, Netflix on-demand streaming. Yeah. So there's obviously some real changes happening in how people consume media. And, um, and my question is, well, how do we make sure that we have ways of finding, compensating, and encouraging the best talent in this in, in the changed world. I know you know you brought up a good point and there is it's almost that the piracy and this fragmented you know entertainment environment it it gives uh, opportunities to these uh, tech startups that help fill the gap where you have I see Kickstarter and then pledge music and just recently I think this one called Patreon which basically is a um, subscription model where every time a content creator puts out a piece of art, you have a designated amount of money you're willing to automatically like tip them constantly as they do it up to a, a roof, which is the amount you're willing to put out for a month. So it seems like oh, people are uh, trying to start filling these gaps that once there was that disruption, you know, there was some rubble and now people are trying to pull themselves out of it. Uh, absolutely. But I, I think we have to try and do more to pull ourselves out of it. And, I think both the old big, the old vehicles for producing entertainment, and the new big, the platforms for distribution, both have to take more active roles in encouraging creators and figuring out new ways of funding and building this kind of creative ecosystem. Because what we're missing now is um, is a lot of a lot of those systems and the the you know it's hard to say what the real dangers are here and some of the other institutions i look at in my book like if you look at national security the dangers are pretty clear and present in big fun the dangers are not as dramatic but i do think something gets lost i talk about you know shared public experience part arguably part of what makes us american is our shared entertainment and you know, the Super Bowl is probably the only real shared American entertainment experience anymore. But I went back and looked at, like, for example, the, the landmark movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in 1967. When that movie came out across the country, you know, a movie about a serious movie about interracial marriage, there were still over a dozen states where interracial marriage was illegal. And the movie in movie theaters everywhere was a part of a national conversation about racism. And I'm not sure you could do that today. There's not that kind of shared public space in the same way. Would you consider and, Twitter a uh, the shared public space? No, no, because it's not. Uh, my Twitter feed doesn't resemble yours uh, and, and probably never will. On any given day, what's showing up on my Twitter feed is completely different from yours. And even even on Facebook or on Google, the the trends and the technology of personalization makes it so that we don't even get the same Google results on the same issues. So it's an echo chamber. It's less. I, I wouldn't say it's an echo chamber as much as it is a very customized, personalized experience. And you see this very customized personal experience, and also in a sense, Kickstarter has that because you think about it this way. Kickstarter is an area where people who are not just a casual viewer, they're the hardcore fans, are dictating what, what exists in reality. So it's almost like everything's becoming personalized and everything's being programming your life and what you want to see happen. And, and, and that strikes me as having a danger for you know, true artists to take risks and to 
um, to succeed, to bring new things into being. You know, being at the mercy of the fans in some ways is fantastic, especially when fans feel like the institutions of entertainment have not done a good job for them over the last two decades. But at the same time, it surely has some downsides. It constricts us in ways that sometimes are hard to um, hard to see at first. And and when you when we look at the restrictions, there I guess there I guess in a sense there's a there's a danger because at a certain point you're gonna be pedal you're gonna be peddling to your hardcore fans if you're an artist, and in, in you know. A long time ago, it was you're peddling to like this broad audience, so now it's a different type of fan that you're trying to appeal to. Certainly, certainly, it seems that way. I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on the fan side of these things, but I, I am. I did talk to some of the big, um, some of the artists who have had Kickstarter projects blow up on them. And they all described, in a sense, how miserable it could get. That you've gone from writing a comic book to spending all of your time worrying about shipping, printing, shipping, and distribution. And that it was a very mixed bag, I think, for a number of the artists who found success on Kickstarter. Yeah, I don't think Kickstarter provides that infrastructure. So it's almost like an artist could create something on a small scale, but... If seven, eight thousand people are now relying on them to um, deliver on their promise, it's a whole new mechanism that they're not used to. You know, they could promote, but they can't execute and deliver all the products and keep track of all the fans that when the game is. I've seen a lot of, especially on Kickstarter, I've seen like a lot of the common sides is that sometimes people are very good at being able to engage with them, but if it goes poorly, you could, could really burn a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think that this gets back to trying to build a robust ecosystem that takes care of artists, but also cultivates and encourages the best products and outcomes. The, and, you know, right now, I think a lot of the old institutions of entertainment are worried about their own survival. And a lot of the new large institutions of entertainment, like YouTube and Netflix, are trying to figure out monetization. And my question is, how can we make sure that people, that the audiences are best served in, in the equation? And, and in many ways, I think they are. You look at some of the successful online TV shows, or TV is not even a good word for them, successful online shows like, say, Zay Frank. And they're very engaged communities who participate very actively in the creating of those shows in really an awesome and interesting and unusual way. Um, but the economics of it are undoubtedly challenging um, across the board to someone like Zay Frank. And, you know, there's no residuals. There's no uh, screenwriters guild. There's no there's none of the institutions that help to cultivate and build and make the old entertainment system successful a sustainable ecosystem uh what i noticed recently was was that dreamworks bought a um a youtube channel for i think it was 30 million dollars and it was like this there wasn't i think there was no i don't think there's any other examples of some huge acquisition i think the the network the channel only existed a nine months since i mean obviously the people involved are veterans in the game but it was interesting that 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 happened you know so you know, perhaps there could be eventually a bubble with people, old media companies buying 
the the rights this the feel you know that they're still competitive and they're on a new platform the, and the real question is is does that you know will the will the new uh, vehicles survive under the under the under the old institutions I part of my argument in my book is I think they're actually relatively incompatible that what makes frequently what makes these new ones successful is 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 in many ways their opposition to the old or their way of doing things dramatically different from the old which can make which can make success in the new medium really challenging for traditional institutions so as I uh a while back, I, I talked to a woman who is one of the authors of the Curse of the Media Mogul, and they, and she was saying that in certain parts of the entertainment industry, the executives think there's this grand vision for a synergy, but sometimes things just operate on their own with their own autonomy. They don't all work together. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the way I think of it is, um, here, here's, how I, here's how I think about this stuff, is that you have to imagine that every everybody is powerful every individual is as powerful as a movie studio you know it used to be the way you launched a movie was you took out a ton of tv ads and billboards but today you get like five bad reviews on yelp or a friend goes on facebook and says whatever you do don't go see this movie yeah <laughs> and no amount of no amount of spending on the part of the studio can counter that and so if you think about the power individuals have in, 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 in the early 70s, if I said to you, what's a computer, you might have you might have replied by describing a machine that would fill a giant room. You know, computers generally cost around five million bucks. They were really only available to the biggest institutions, to big universities, big companies, big government. And over the course of the last 35, 40 years, the power of those giant machines has shrunken and gotten cheaper so that now 130 million Americans have smartphones that are as powerful, if not more powerful, than a Cray supercomputer of the early 70s. So all, everybody has this tremendous power, and they're all connected to the Internet. And anyone with sufficient talent, ingenuity, and creativity can create compelling entertainment products and distribute them at essentially zero cost. The, the question in that equation is, how do you build businesses that are scalable and profitable that, um, that will survive? What's the future of a big entertainment company in an age of totally distributed power, both in terms of production and consumption? And we have a few hints at what that future looks like, you know, like Kickstarter is a hint at what that future might look like. Crowdfunding instead of, you know, trying to raise money from traditional studio financing. But we don't have the we don't have the full picture yet. It's it's still it's still, you know, it's still it's still coming together. And whatever the future of that entertainment is, it's not going to look like the past. It's not going to be concentrated in 10 zip codes like it is now. And, you know, my when I think about what that means for big entertainment companies, I think probably that 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 starts with trying to understand and inhabit that power, starting to treat your audience as having that exceptional power, um, which can be a hard thing to do. But I look at. I look at 
the way some of the online communities around YouTube channels get into like a dialogue with the creator. And, um, and I think that, I think that's, that's part of the, that's part of the future. And no, it's a, it's interesting that sometimes people look at what's big and they look at, Oh, that's, that's success is that they, that a company employs a lot of people that's success. But you look in startups, they're about being efficient. So it's not the size of the team. It's what they could put out and how efficient they are and what kind of, what they could leverage. And, it, and I see with uh, YouTube that these uh, performers are a lot like, you know, the ones that have very successful, you know, presence online. They're, they are like a, a, a tech startup. They're very lean. They're constantly iterating. And they, they've isolated what is their uh, revenue uh, models. They have merchandising. They have, they have sponsorship. They're, they're figuring out much faster because they're smaller. So there's that, there's that advantage in being able to uh, move fast. Now with big studios, I guess in the past, uh, their advantage is their marketing push, how they could just throw that money out. But as you say that uh, the as, competi as competition starts evening out and they don't have so much of advantage, it's at a certain point, they're not mm -hmm. making any more noise. And they, don't, and they may even have less of a, a personal relationship with this fan base. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at successful online shows uh, I mentioned Zay Frank. We might say the Shaytards. You could also say Jenna Marbles. You know, all all of them have a very intense back and forth with their audiences in a wide range of ways. All three of those shows are really audience participatory and community driven in some sense, and in in a way in a way that would be I think impossible in traditional television shows. Um, and, 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 and that suggests a different kind of entertainment project for the, or a different kind of entertainment model for the future. I mean, I think of, I think of Zay Frank as a weird mix between like a scavenger hunt, a television show and an online community. Right. Yeah. And, and so the, the, you know, we're, we're constrained by what we think of as entertainment because of the nature of our, because of the nature of our experience with our current models of entertainment, if that makes sense. No, no, it it, it makes. I mean, think sense. about Reddit. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, Reddit meetups are pretty pretty interesting to check out. You know, fans of Reddit meet up in person, and that's a kind of entertainment community. That's a kind of vehicle for the future of of entertainment. Uh, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, the people go out and there's that there's that community. What I feel that um, the entertainment industry should be doing more of, at least, is these studios. They have Comic Con. They they take out their stuff to Comic Con, and then they have these, you know, material that they bring it to um to websites. You know, Anacol News, all these cool sites. I was wondering why don't they <clears throat> have more of a website themselves? That's their own entertainment, where their own events, where their own community managers. It seems like they're losing so much information. Once they're just like giving it all uh, away and not kind of bring it into their own like space, you know that's why I feel that there could be an they could have a value add because it seems like as soon as it leaves you know Comic Con you know all these people run off and Comic Con is is traditional entertainment industry putting out big movies big TV shows and they have their fans and they see at Comic Con it's like it's so packed and um, online people on the certain websites you know they're really active talking about certain stuff but it didn't seem like they ever take control of it and really like run with it and build off of this excitement well there definitely feels like 
there were uh it definitely feels like there was um I mean, I, I think it's hard it's, when you come from, when you come out of an existing industry or institution, it's hard to imagine the disruption that industry or institution might face. And so mm-hmm. when you, you know, when you publish books, it's hard to imagine ebooks working, right? And, and similarly, if, you're, if your world and professional experience is about um um it, it, it is about you know um is is about television shows it's hard to imagine uh this kind of deeply interactive experience that really is hard to cr- describe as a television show that you get in a lot of these uh in in a lot of these kinds of um and a lot of these kinds of online shows. I see what you're saying. It's just uh, where you come from. And I read in an article that you wrote was in Wired that you're saying that there's a certain sweet spot for Kickstarter, but for something as you know as costly as Game of Thrones, it almost exists in the old world. You know, even you know despite of its big falling, it's just to be able to reach that um, was it at six million dollars per episode. It's such a it's such a high goal that it just wouldn't sustain itself uh, in the new media uh, equivalent. Is, is, Correct. Uh, w- please elaborate on uh, why you think that's the case. All right. Well, I think that the um, I think that the uh, uh, I mean this goes back to I was trying to imagine if the big institutions that have really dri- built and driven the entertainment industry to date um, disappear. Or, or can't survive, what gets lost? Like, how would, we build, how would we build something exceptional? And so Game of Thrones is exceptional. It's riveting. It is l- lusciously produced. It has gorgeous landscapes. It has a cast of thousands and horses and incredible, that incredible opening sequence and great music just everything about it is really well done and it costs approximately six million dollars an episode and uh, you know at this point you know it's hard to imagine you you know you could crowdsource 12 episodes at six million bucks a pop on kickstarter although uh, that does not feel to me out entirely out of the realm of possibility but surely along the way you there'll be some 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 sacrifices you know, I think one one question, one Hillary Rosen, from the, who I talked to about this, she said, "Well, does it matter to you if the soundtrack is composed online using GarageBand or done by a real live orchestra?" Yeah, and to some people, that that's not going to matter. The fidelity of that experience is not going to be essential to the quality of the product. And it raises some kind of fundamental questions about the nature of, you might say, art. I'm reminded of the Orson Welles movie "F is for Fake." <laughs> no, and no, no. It's so. So I get. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's kind of this interesting is that if, he, if something like this gets brought into this uh, new uh, new new world, is that obviously there are some concessions. You can't, you know, obviously, like you said, the score can't be this way. You can't have as many horses. Now, like when you look at just the fan base, there's. Um, 
I think it was um, six million uh, view views on uh, HBO for the latest season uh, for one of uh, I think it was one of their, uh, de- their, their de- I think it was their, fir- their first episode of the season and then I know 2012 uh, I think Tort Freak said it had about 4.3 million people download a season on Facebook as it were 5 million likes so there is a strong fan base it's like how much does that translate into like people throwing their money at it to, to keep a season going you know how 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 hardcore are they to spend that kind of, the the real money to bring something that large back you know it's an open question but i could you know i think that the future of entertainment is likely to continue to develop out along those lines i just think that the the force and direction of the industry is not towards the traditional large vehicles like movie studios and traditional TV production houses, the force and and energy and intensity and creative opportunity in the industry is towards individuals and small shops producing on their own, creating on their own online, having greater creative control and greater business control over the assets. You look at like Louis C.K. and what he's done with his comedy specials. And you look at uh, even Macklemore on the music side, and you look at, you know, the the enormous volume of self-published authors on Kindle and Kindle Shorts, and the, the you know the the direction of ever that everything's going is not not in the direction of these traditional institutions. And when you look at the success of like film at the such a big budget of Iron Man. Is that kind of like an outlier? Is that kind of there's always going to be some big, you know, temple pictures, but everything between this huge Iron Man budget and then there's the the much smaller, uh, you know, budgets for like YouTube videos or indie movies. So, so is it in a sense that the middle is just gutted and there's just a very big, or then there's very small and fast moving entrepreneurial type projects? Well, I think the big the the days of the big are numbered. I don't I don't think that the big has a ton of I don't think the big has a ton of opportunity in the long run. So you're saying like with like the success of Iron Man and Avengers, all these type of movies, that they have a certain place, but in the long term, you're saying that they might not have enough of a a, a rev like a revenue model support that something oh, that no doubt. I yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sorry, but people are not going to keep going to movie theaters. The the trends are pretty clear, and the quality and and um, design of home theater systems grows better and cheaper every year. And the appeal of movie theater distribution is dropping dramatically. And as that trend continues, the profitability of blockbusters will decline. And and the competitive nature of the... I mean, if the future... It's easy for me to imagine, given the pace and direction of home theater systems that the future of movies is really in Netflix on demand. And then what does that mean for blockbusters? You know, if you're competing against the back catalog of every other movie ever made. No. So no, it's a good point. So hypothetically, if I had a fund to invest in the entertainment industry, what opportunities should I back and what investments should I avoid? Well, I I'm I broadly think you have to look for things that take advantage of the distributed power for both production and distribution of entertainment. And that can mean lots of different things, but you have to look for for businesses that understand 
this transfer of power that's happened over the last 40 years thanks to the internet and computers and smartphones and laptops. And, you know, YouTube is a good early example of that, but there are more emerging every day. And that's, so that's one thing I would look for. I think the other thing I'd look for is I do think there's gonna, there are businesses to be built around, you know, the, what I think of as the organizational layer, the, whatever the future of the television production studio looks like. I don't know what that is. It's not going to look like a television production studio, but there's a similar, there needs, there's room for additional organizations and businesses between the talent and the distribution to the audience. And the, the new organizations and companies that can figure out how to plug in there will have tremendous powerful and be very successful. And I guess when it comes to what you would avoid, it would, would be uh, obviously the traditional, you know, entertainment industry, you know, what that represents, you know, that, you know, without, would you also avoid film like one offs in the comparison to avoiding serialized content online? Like, is there kind of like, is it kind of like take your money and push it more into these evolving spaces? You know, is that kind of the, the, the vibe, you know, is, well, it, I mean, I wouldn't want to that. give anybody real advice about this because this is not necessarily, you know, I have theories about I have theories about what technology is doing to existing industries, but in terms of an investment strategy, that's kind of a that's kind of a different, broader question. Uh, for me, the real, you know, I, like I don't want to. It's hard. I have no idea what the financial dynamics of a traditional movie is, and whether or not that's a good investment versus an internet startup trying to reimagine movie distribution. But I do think that um, there are opportunities. I mean, think about think about discovering new books. You know, somewhere north of fifty percent. I think we're closing in on sixty percent of books sold are sold through Amazon.com. But that's a pretty limited way to browse and discover new talent, new books to read. The bookstore provided an old model for that, but bookstores are rapidly disappearing. So there's obviously, there's obviously some room to create new vehicles for discovering product, for discovering books. And I suspect the similar increasingly in terms of other forms of entertainment like movies and TV shows and what have you, the, there'll be, be room for a similar kind of discovery vehicles. The creation is key because of all the noise, and that's a whole new value add that um, that could help navigate, you know, people with similar taste. So, no, you're right. I mean, if Amazon gives a certain way they they're able to engage with you, but is it truly that social? Is it easy to understand? Is it you know, is it too complex? Too many options? So, no, you're right that there there could be a, a space to fill with. Uh, with uh, creators that you know have that trust relationship, so it's not as much as a distributor in a sense that is this heavy, you know, infrastructure to get a movie into theaters and then all market material. But it's to know that they respect somebody of similar taste who you pay to you know help guide you. Absolutely. And uh, I guess um, lastly, um, what are your favorite blogs and books? Like, what do you recommend? You know. Uh... Oh boy, that's a hard one. Uh, well, you know, I'll ask, answer that kind of a strange way. Like, uh, I actually love email lists, and I'll tell you two that I really enjoy. One is called Very Short List, VSL, that comes out of the New York Observer. 
and every day they send they have different curators every day and the curator picks three uh, sites or three links on a given theme which i think is really fascinating and interesting and covers a wide range of ground from food to entertainment to, to journalism and politics uh, another one um another um another email list i um uh i really enjoy is um is 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 a, is a lot longer but um but it's called uh oh geez i'm suddenly blank what is it called oh shoot i'm i suck no 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 it's cool i could just add that in uh if you could just email me uh if it comes to mind what 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 yeah and then, next uh, draft. Next draft. So next draft, is, next draft. Next draft. Next draft. And that's another right. email list that uh, you really like. Dave Pell. Mm-hmm. Another another email list I love is Next Draft by Dave Pell, uh, which just has always got interesting interesting stuff in it. And uh, when it comes to uh, your reading, is there anything that uh, recently stood out for you, or is there any classics that you know kind of influenced your work? Well, I think everyone in the entertainment industry should read. Um, Jaron Jaron Lanier's latest book. It's called Who Owns the Future. It's really an exceptional book, and it's substantially about the future of the entertainment industry. Oh, great! So no, I will make sure to put this on my list, and uh, I'll have um, everybody check out the end of Big. And um, it was a pleasure having you on my show. Great, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. It was Peter Katz. You can check me out at peterkatz.net. It's K-T-Z. And email me any feedback at katzfilms at gmail.com.